Thank you for joining me today. This is Colin Hamilton, Commodities Analyst at BMO Capital Markets. And welcome to our short Metals Matters podcast where we highlight the key things you need to know in global metals and mining this week. We have published two big reports since the last Metal Matters. So I'll start this week by summarising these. The first is on copper substitution, which was essentially born out of frustration with the analysis we see in the market talking about large deficits in the coming years. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, large deficits and negative inventory doesn't happen. And if the supply side can't solve the problem, demand has to adjust, whether by thrifting or by substitution. And there's been a notable pickup in discussions around this over 2023 to date. We've been asked several times to quantify the scope of potential demand destruction. So, To address this question, we have built a pretty detailed global end-use demand model, incorporating our existing regional energy transition and automotive models. What's the outcome? Well, if supply wasn't a constraint, copper semis demand could reach 40.4 million tonnes by 2030. That's a pretty healthy growth rate, over 3%. However, supply is a constraint. And purchasing managers are naturally starting to look at alternatives, having been told time and time again, we're pretty short on copper. So our analysis shows that together with the distribution network, air conditioners are the most likely area for substitution, particularly for commercial real estate where there's less space constraints. The thing that surprised me personally most was that Daikin, one of the world's leading air conditioning manufacturers, is aiming to reduce the amount of copper consumed in Japan by half this year and half its global consumption by the end of next year. That's substitution taking place right now. In terms of thrifting, electric vehicles are a natural target as designs mature and are optimised. Even so, in our base case, copper semis demand from the energy transition area is forecast to grow to 2.6 million tonnes in 2030. That's an 85% increase over current levels. And to reiterate, substitution is a necessary evil. And if it happens in a steady and incremental way, this is good for prices. But it is fair to say the risk of fear substitution, which hurts both industry volumes and prices, is growing. I do want to point to one other finding, the trend towards a higher ratio of underground and submarine power lines compared to overhead. That's positive for copper demand. So as we have continued urbanisation, less urban space, particularly higher buildings, we have the connection of offshore wind capacity, we have the rise in electricity interconnectors, which connect systems of different countries. And with the increasing need to limit damage arising from extreme climate events, we expect to see a continued increase in the amount of underground and submarine power lines. This really is copper's domain. The second report was on iron ore and the longer view there. Let's put things in context. Iron ore is not a growth market on a 10-year view. With headwinds coming from China having peak for steel output, a bit more on that one later, Uh, rising ferrous scrap availability and the pressure on the steel industry to decarbonise. Yes, there are quantum leap solutions being proposed, such as hydrogen blast furnaces. These are a long way away from economic reality. Rather, I'd look towards incremental steps to reduce coal use as central for the steel industry efforts. And this is where high-grade iron ores have a major role to play. We expect more pellets to be used in the blast furnace burden over time, and are big believers in direct reduced iron, so DRI. Production there is set to increase from about 125 million tonnes at the moment to about 200 million tonnes in 2030 in our numbers. 
Incumbent owner producers, which all run a Center Finds dominant product mix, have a bit of a problem. There's a decline in their core market. And while it's a gradual shift and there'll be a need to keep current products flowing to key customers for the foreseeable future, in 20 years' time, Center Finds may not be the product that the market wants. And if you add to that, there's general expectation that the new centralized iron ore buyer in China may want to exert a little bit more influence in this area. Well, given this, we see a need for the business model to shift over time. And if you think about it, these structural changes in the iron ore market provide somewhat of a unique opportunity. If we take the global market, we see traded iron ore volumes falling about 200 million tonnes by 2030. But pellet feed demand, that's for both blast furnaces and DR grade, we see that rising 135 million tonnes over the same period. And if we think about it, that makes the pellet feed market large enough in its own right to justify a different marketing and pricing strategy. For much of the time, pellet premium is actually in excess of the actual pellet conversion costs, meaning pellet plants, uh, typically located at steel mills, are capturing much of the value. In contrast, pellet feed prices are currently linked to center fines, which makes limited sense given the different process routes. So as we get this larger, more robust pellet feed market emerging with some merchant demand, we expect suppliers should be able to capture some of this value, particularly given that it is a growth market when the overall iron is declining, and that should give producers some pricing power. So if implemented successfully, this could help average sales prices across the iron ore portfolio remain more robust than are currently modeled at a time when global blast furnace output is set to decline. We've had a request in, and it's for a view on the silver market. And I always like to keep you listeners happy. So here goes. Let's start with the near term, which really comes down to macro asset allocator positioning, the Fed, and the US dollar. Silver's had a pretty tumultuous time over the past month, having peaked over $25 an ounce and falling comfortably below $23 an ounce in recent times. With a soft and expected CPI print in the US, combine that with a relatively weak industrial production reading, it served to temper expectations for future Fed rate hikes. Many market participants, indeed, including BMO Economics, are now of the belief that economic headwinds will outweigh tailwinds in the coming months turning a skip in rate hikes at the September meeting into a more prolonged pause. With that, silver prices caught a bid in the middle of the month as the US dollar came in under some selling pressure. But interestingly, alongside the last Fed policy announcement, Chair Powell made it clear that while economic resiliency was a good thing, too much of it would require an appropriate response from monetary policy, i.e. the Fed is still of the view that better macro data will likely mean bringing inflation down to its 2% target more challenging and thus further rate hikes cannot be entirely discounted. This has seen the US dollar strengthen and the precious complex come under broad selling pressure. In our view, silver could show its usual torque on the downside move compared to gold just in the very near term, because while broadly speaking the global economy is holding up relatively well compared to expectations, this is almost solely down to resiliency in the services economy, while the manufacturing side is clearly feeling the strain. And of course, this disproportionately affects silver because industrial demand, that makes up about 50% of global silver demand, compared to only 7% of gold. Through 2024, we're of the view that we'll see some risk on appetite gather momentum as we are past the deer in economic data and uncertainty around Fed policy is lifted. And we might see a little bit more money flow out of the precious complex, perhaps out of silver sooner than gold, but eventually we see gold ultimately falling fuller. Longer term, we have the gold to silver ratio back at 71, 
which is relative silver outperformance. And that's partly helped by silver's important role in the global photovoltaic build-out, which should help industrial demand grow by about 100 million ounces per annum to 2030. Finally this week, let's talk some numbers on Chinese steel production cuts. We've got various media outlets having reported that China's NDRC has held discussions with provincial authorities about formalising plans to limit steel output in the country, with the aim that 2023 is 40 million tonnes below 2021 levels. This discussion to lower output is not new, but it does suggest the NDRC is starting to get near the point of forcing mandated cuts. We'll wait and see where that comes, but if we look at it, key provinces like Hubei are well up year on year in the first half. We put numbers around China as a whole. The implied full year output would be 991 million tonnes. And if we think of Chinese production the first half of the year, that was 538 million tonnes, so 54% of the total in the first year. Relative to June output levels, which are strong, at 1,109 million tonnes per annum, that implies a 17% output cut is needed for the second half average to meet the NDRC's full year target. July's numbers are down but not by this much. And the later the cuts come, the more aggressive they would need to be. There's definitely some echoes of 2021 here. Clearly, this has some negative implications for steelmaking raw material demand, and we did see iron ore drop below $100 per tonne CFR China this week. However, if more Chinese steel is being kept at home and, and output is lowered, we'd expect to see lower steel exports in the second half. That could support Asian steel prices. Thank you for listening to Metal Matters. We are here to inform, so any topics you'd like to see covered, do just let me know. And please join me again soon to discuss more pertinent issues in these ever-changing global metals and bulk commodity markets. That was Metal Matters, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Metal Martyrs on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more episodes, including our other podcast series, BMO Equity Research in Tune. If you have feedback or suggestions for upcoming podcasts, please do share it with me at colin.hamilton at bmo.com. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com forward slash public hyphen disclosure.